Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with medical student Sayale Baitohi. She is in her second year of medical school at the University of Utah School of Medicine in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome, Sayale. Thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, we've interviewed some physicians up to this point, but we haven't interviewed any medical students. So you're our first medical student on the show. Yeah. I think our listeners will be excited to hear what it's like to be a medical student. Because I know some of us as physicians, we kind of forget everything about what we went through in medical school. So it'll be nice to get your perspective. So I wanted to ask a couple of questions so that our listeners get to know you. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about your upbringing and your background. Yeah, so I grew up in Utah County of Utah, so the heart of Utah. I am the oldest of three kids. My dad is Tongan. He grew up in Tonga, and he moved to the U.S. when he was 18. My mother identifies Hispanic, Native American, and Caucasian, so she's mixed. Um, she and my dad met in Provo while my mother was attending BYU. Um, so we come from a very mixed background, so it was interesting growing up in Utah County being... Uh, we were always like the minority, and there are like a, quite a few Polynesians in Utah, um, but a lot of them reside in Salt Lake City or West Valley near Salt Lake City, and if in Utah County in Provo. So I grew up um 20 minutes south of Provo in Payson, Utah. Uh-huh. So yeah, being the oldest of three kids, and my mother was a college graduate. She graduated from nursing school at BYU, and then my dad I uh, never attended college, and so I kind of got a mix of, like, one side of the family was able to attend college, and the other side, like, my dad had no idea what the college experience was like, mm-hmm. um, and then we were just mixed ethnically, and uh, my mother, it, it was a really active member of the LDS Church, and then my father um, is not a member of the LDS Church, so I feel like I grew up, I don't know, in several kind of worlds, mm-hmm. which may be, like, a little unique for Utah, but... Those were all powerful experiences that have kind of led me on this path to pursue medicine. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Was is Payson a pretty small town? What was that like? Yeah, it's it's pretty small. It's it's rural. Um, we live like at the edge of town too, so we live by a bunch of fields and farms. Um, so when I would bring friends home from Provo, which is not that far away, they would say, "You live in like farmland," especially uh-huh. people from like the city and California and stuff they're like I've never seen so many cows um (laughs) so it's pretty small yeah and it's not very diverse ethnically I guess you'd say and even like religiously it's pretty homogenous for the most part so sure um but my my parents really liked it just they my mother grew up in a small town and my dad coming from the island they didn't want to live like in a city and and they like to have more space to be able to breathe they said Mm-hmm. So you mentioned your mother went to nursing school. Did she practice as a nurse? Yeah. After she graduated from BYU, she worked in like the post-operation, post-surgery like unit at Timpanogos Regional Hospital in Orem. She worked there for a few years, and then she eventually got into home health and hospice. And so 
she had me while she was in nursing school. And then as I got a little older and um, she had my other siblings, she decided she wanted to do home health and hospice because it was more flexible for schedule to be able to take us to practice for sports and dance. Um, so she's done home health and hospice for probably 15, 20, 20 years, probably. And, uh-huh. and that's been that's where the interest in medicine sparked was my mother on Saturdays, she would like take me to go with her to visit her patients, like the ones who didn't have family around or um, didn't get visited by family often. So that was something fun that my mom did. Growing up on Saturdays, we would go with her and we would meet her patients. And that's when I started to develop that interest in that. And just I loved watching my mom's role in helping people heal or just just like how much they loved my mom and stuff that just in, inspired me to see her as a nurse working with her patients. Wonderful. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful inspiration. So I'm curious, you knew your mom as um, as a nurse in that role. Through your mom's work, did you get to meet any doctors when you were younger? No, no, not at no, it was I mostly just met nurses and like seeing it like the aides that would help. Um, that's who I was around. The only doctors I ever met were um, like my pediatrician and stuff. But uh-huh. yeah, my mom didn't get in like a circle of doctors or anything like that. Gotcha. So what is it that made you make the leap from, wow, I really like what my mom is doing as a nurse um, in home health and other things to, oh, maybe I want to be a doctor myself. I I think I just knew I wanted to do something in the medical field for a long time, but I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a nurse or a PA or a doctor, and all of them seemed like good options. Um, but my dad was actually the one like, "You should be a doctor. You should be a doctor." Um, uh-huh. yeah. Why is that? I don't know. I think I I've never really asked him to be honest, like why he wanted that so much. But I I think for him, a lot of it was just like this, you know, like the American dream, you come over and you get to like, be whatever you want to be. And so I think he thought if I if I couldn't go be a doctor, if I couldn't be a lawyer or whatever, like, at least I can give my kids that opportunity to try to do it, or at least encourage them to so. And I think too, he knew I like I liked what my mom did and like I wanted to go into the medical field but I think sometimes like it was it was more me that I was like I don't know if I'm smart enough or, like I don't know if I can do the whole process like when I was younger I was like medical school like that's uh-huh. a really long time to be like to be a doctor so but yeah my dad's like kind of instilled that in me since I was like in middle school I feel like or maybe even younger yeah so it sounds like he was really a cheerleader for you that's wonderful totally so is he really happy now that you're in medical school yeah you made it (laughs) he's so proud he he'll tell like random people it's just so funny he's so cute (laughs) he does like landscaping and concrete and he'll tell like his customers yeah my daughter's in medical school and I'm sure they don't even ask he just like tells them (laughs) really proud yeah proud dad that's awesome yeah totally it's cute So tell us a little bit about your high school experience, your college experience prior to medical school. Yeah, I was really 
like active academically in in high school. I always had gotten good grades. And so my teachers said, you know, you should take honors classes and AP classes. So I was involved academically. And then I also, for the majority of my life growing up, I did competitive dance. And then um, I also started doing track when I was in junior high. My, My mother and my father both did like track when they were in high school. And so I started like participating in the track meets and I was doing really well. And then I had the high school track coach come to me in junior high and was like, you know, this, this could be something that could pay for your school. You should, I know you love dance and that's like your first love, but you should really consider track um, because Uh you have a lot of talent. And so uh, when I got into high school, when I was a sophomore, that was my last year that I um, did competitive dance. And then after that, I went full time with volleyball and track. And so I was active in sports and then I also um, participated in student government Mm -hmm. growing up in junior high and high school so all the way I was really busy I just kept myself busy and that's how my parents liked it they just wanted us to like stay busy in in everything in school and sports so it's pretty busy and then that eventually track led to a track scholarship at BYU and so then I left to BYU and I uh, was a five-year student athlete and uh, got a degree in physiology and developmental biology while at BYU. Wonderful. Yeah, that's great that you were able to get a scholarship that way. What was it like to transition for you from high school to the college life? It was really difficult. I thought I was really smart in high school. And then when I got to be and in high school, I was like, yeah, I think I want to be a doctor. But then when I got to college, I realized like I didn't really have like a solid foundation of how to study, especially for tests. And I I thought I was a good test taker. And then I, (laughs) my freshman year, I remember I was like in a general chemistry class, and I was not doing well. And that was really hard for me because that was the first time I'd ever experienced that academically. Um, Uh Like I wasn't at the top anymore. And then it was similar with track, like I wasn't at the top anymore. And so I think I just questioned a lot of my decisions, like about why I was doing these things. And then I wasn't doing that well in my science classes. So I thought, okay, maybe I shouldn't be a doctor. Um, Uh Uh-huh. And yeah, the transition was kind of rough and it made, especially because I was taking a lot of those, like they call them like weeder classes, like general chemistry, general biology. And so I didn't really like it, to be honest, for my first couple of years at BYU. And so what I decided to do was to to take a break and um, to serve a a mission for the LDS church. I was like, I'm going to take a break and kind of reset because I don't know if medicine's still going to be my thing. Like, I don't know if I'm smart enough or like, I don't know if that's where my heart is. And like track, I don't know if I want to do track anymore when I get home. Uh huh. I, yeah, I left BYU um, to serve a mission for a year and a half. I served in the Philippines. Uh huh. For our listeners that might not know what an LDS mission is, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, totally. Um, so the LDS church sends, we have 18 year old boys and then when girls turn 19, um, you can apply to be, it's pretty much a full-time service volunteer for your church. And so you can be called anywhere within your own country or you can be called abroad. And you pretty much just dedicate that year and a half. It's a year and a half for girls, 18 months, and then two years for elders, for boys. And you spend that time sharing about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then you do a lot of like service work and volunteer work. So, um, but it's, you don't get paid for it. And 
you you actually pay to serve a mission and then yeah you spend your 18 months two years and you if you go abroad you can learn a language or even within your own country you can learn a language so uh, while I was in the Philippines I learned uh, Hiligaynon and Cebuano which are two dialects in the Philippines there's like hundreds of dialects in the Philippines but to call mm-hmm. it is their national language so yeah I learned two dialects on my mission wow that's amazing yeah it was my first time learning a language sadly even though my dad's my dad's like a native Tongan speaker and that's his first language and then my mother is Hispanic grew up in New Mexico she spoke mm-hmm. Spanish but they, they didn't teach either of us and so I really struggled when it, it came to learning a language but we did uh-huh. it at the end you're fluent and stuff just because you're fully immersed in the culture and around native speakers all the time so uh-huh. it was a really good yeah experience excellent so how did that experience of being away from home in a foreign country, you know, teaching about your church, learning a foreign language, how did that influence your journey as a whole? And how did that even influence your decision to go back and pursue medical school after all? Yeah, that was my first time like away, away from home. So growing up in Payson, that's only 20 minutes away from Provo where BYU is. So I was 20 minutes away from my parents my first two years of college. So even though I moved out, like I knew anytime I could call my mom, call my dad and they could help me. And so when I left on my mission to the Philippines, you can't you can't call home except for you can email home once a week for an hour and then you get a call home on Mother's Day and Christmas and so that was my first time being on my own and so it was a good time to reflect about who I was and what was important to me just being on my own and then serving in the Philippines it's a third world country it's totally different than what I'd grown up with and so it gave me a lot of perspective of what I felt like was important in my life and seeing that people can be happy with very little was just really inspiring but it took me a long time just to kind of figure out who I was and what I wanted to do, like just to step away from school and track. And I had been so busy my whole life with like things about myself that it was a time to reflect about doing things for other people and just being able to give time to for other people that really shaped me and how it, how I wanted to spend my career and like how I wanted to return home to my life and do things. And so while I was in the Philippines, I got dengue fever, which is like you get that from mosquitoes. And um, I was mm-hmm. pretty sick. It's like kind of like the flu, but 10 times worse. And, Yikes. and then like I saw kids with all sorts of like diseases that I'd never seen at home because um, we get like our vaccinations and stuff. And I saw people die just because they weren't able to get the medical help they needed. And then wow. it was, yeah, it was there was a lot of things that happened that I felt like, I don't know, I don't think that's like every missionary's experience or every volunteer's experience. But for whatever reason, that was my experience that it kind of made me rethink my decision about maybe not going into medicine. It kind of made me think, you know, you have seen this and you have the opportunity and not a lot of people get the opportunity. So the worst thing that can happen is you you go for it and you try and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But you have the opportunity to try to make a difference in like people's lives, whether it's here in the Philippines or it's back at home in Utah or wherever you end up, you need to like reconsider and think about it again. So that's kind of what started to steer me back towards medicine was actually my experience on my mission. Yeah, that's nice to be able to take that time away from school 
focus on something different and really reflect on what your life goals are. I think that's one of the major challenges for people around the time they're in college is like, what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> it's a big question and it's hard to know right away what you want to do. Yeah. Um, you mentioned also the experience of what I like to think of as going from high school where you're the big fish in a small pond <laughs> to going to college where you're the small fish in a very big pond. And I think that's a very common experience for college students, especially ambitious, you know, people who were ambitious in high school did really well and then find themselves at big colleges or universities. I know that that's definitely how I felt <laughs> for sure. And you also mentioned, you know, taking those weeder courses of chemistry and biology and starting to really question your decision or your goal there. That's also really common. Yeah. Um, so when you went back to school, it's not like chemistry was magically suddenly easier, I imagine. But what is it that got you through those hard courses that you still had to take? Uh, when I came home, yeah, I I had figured out a little bit about how to study and uh prioritize like I was a lot better with time management when I returned home from my mission uh, when you're on your mission you learn like you have a little planner and you plan out like every half an hour hour of the day and that really helped me when I came home to try to like organize my life and then also I felt like I had more purpose just those experiences in the Philippines it reminded me of like experiences that I had growing up with my dad and his family you know being from Tonga they didn't have health care they didn't have insurance and while all these things were happening when I was younger I didn't really realize what was happening like I didn't realize it's not normal to like not have health care or it's not normal to not go to the doctor or uh -huh. like that and it was finally like when I was on my mission in the Philippines that I started to like see these parallels of you know like this isn't just happening in the Philippines like this is happening at home and this is happening to like my own family and community members and so right yeah, that's too when I was starting to find my purpose. So when I came home, like I felt like I have a purpose. Like I'm not I'm not gonna go to medical school just to like go to medical school and be a doctor. Like I have I felt like I had a lot of people like counting on me just because I felt like I had like the privilege to even go to school and like I had this knowledge of what was like happening and I'd seen both sides and so I just felt I don't know if I'd say this responsibility, but yeah, kind of this responsibility to to take school like seriously and to even if I wasn't the best like to know that if I gave my 100% and I tried my best like that was what was important at the end of the day even if I wasn't going to be the top dog and that was okay. So once you came back and you decided okay I'm going to go for it. I love what you said by the way you know what's the worst that can happen? I can give it my best and maybe I don't get it but at least I tried and I love I love that attitude because it's true we don't exactly know what's going to happen but we can give it our best, give it our best shot. And then at least we know we tried. Yeah. But once you got back to school and decided on this goal for yourself, did you have anyone along the way that helped you out? Did you have a mentor or a professor or friends or anyone you knew that helped to motivate you to help keep you on track? It was kind of difficult. I took this class they offer this like pre-med, pre-dental, pre-law, like pre-professional class. And they bring in like people in that field. And then they also kind of tell you what the process is for applying. And so I, I took that class and then I went to visit. They have advisors you can go meet to talk about your plan. So I like met with the advisor there, but he wasn't like my advisor. He was just kind of a general advisor. And then I had like a, a major advisor. And then I also had track 
um, academic advisor. And so, but anyways, I had lots of advisors, but I didn't feel like any of them clicked with me. And Mm -hmm. so like my track advisor, she, she was like, you know, you should, I was like, I want to do physiology. And she's like, well, you should do exercise science. It's like, it's 30 credits shorter. You can graduate faster. It's a lot easier. You're a student athlete. And that's what all the other athletes do. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then uh-huh. I had like my my major advisor and I told him like, I want to do med school. And he's like, I don't know if you're really going to be that competitive you should consider maybe a, like a master's or whatever before you apply. And then like the pre-med advisor was just kind of like, well, this is what you need to do. So like, mm-hmm. good luck, go for it. But like there there wasn't like a lot of direction. So for a lot of the time, it was just like me trying to figure out what I needed to do. So I like took a lot of notes from the class. And so I was like trying to make sure I was like in alignment with what the like pre-med prerequisites were. But I was kind of doing my own thing for quite a while. And then something random, there was like a Pacific Islander um, high school conference that BYU hosted. And I had a friend who was going to be on a panel speaking and answering questions. And she asked me, she's like, hey, do you want to be on this panel with me? they're looking for like Pacific Islander students. And so I joined the panel. And then on the panel, I said, I'm pre-med. I want to be a doctor. And during that conference, there was a Hawaiian physician who was sitting in the audience listening. Mm -hmm. And so after the conference, um, like months later, I had this random Hawaiian student come up to me one day and was like, you're CLA, right? And I was like, yeah. She was like, there is a physician named Dr. Kavehi Ao. She wants you to email her. She wants she she heard your pre med and she wants to help you. So here's her email address. And it oh, was wonderful. Yeah, That's amazing. It, it was amazing. It was so random and it was seriously like sent from heaven or something. Because I I think up to that point I was just like floating. Like I think I was thinking I was doing what I was supposed to be. But um, mm-hmm. anyways, like after that I emailed her and then she was she was like who I would consider my mentor and my cheerleader to try to like guide me was she local did she live in the area oh yeah she was local so she lived in Provo and then she was also um practicing in Provo at Utah Valley Hospital so she was Uh really close to me too which was like a huge blessing oh great yeah yeah so so what do you think about having that mentor specifically a female a female of color how did how did that help you how did connecting with her help you yeah that was like I felt like that was like the big game changer like I said like when I came home the thing was kind of like I'm pre-med but I don't know if it's gonna work out but I'm just gonna go for it but when I met her I was like oh like I can see myself in her like it's it just felt like more real and then um, she shared a lot of like the same struggles that I I had and she was just like really relatable growing up she was from Hawaii and she grew up like in a Polynesian community and so like she just knew what I was going through in a lot of ways and she was like kind of her own trailblazer and I think she wanted to be able to help students like her to make the journey that's so hard like a little easier but that that was like the big game changer like when I met her like I felt like the goal of going to medical school became like 10,000 times more possible than it had like been before that. It was just kind of a dream before, but it became more realistic after I met her. I love that you shared that because I think it really speaks to the power of mentorship. And I think the power of examples that um, 
I like to say you can't be what you can't see. And so especially for minorities of color, you know, if you don't see yourself reflected in the medical community, it's really hard to really imagine yourself getting there. I know for me, that was a bit of a challenge. So I think having mentors that come from similar backgrounds to our own can be so, so powerful, just like your story demonstrates. Yeah. I'm also curious. So you mentioned growing up in Utah Valley. Utah is unique, (laughs) as I've learned living here that you know, it's dominated by this culture of one particular religion, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not everyone here, of course, belongs to that church, but enough people belong to that church that a lot of the culture of the church seeps into the larger culture of the state. It is a culture in which, you know, men are encouraged more than women to pursue ambitious careers. Women, even though, you know, they're encouraged to get educations, And many women do, of course, have careers and work. They're a little more encouraged to become mothers and focus on raising children. So I'm curious, did that affect you growing up and affect how you saw yourself in the future or your career ambitions? Yeah, it definitely did. My mother worked full time as like a nurse and both of my parents worked full time. And it was kind of like I felt like our community members kind of looked down on that and... (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we didn't grow up super traditional. My mom didn't cook dinner a lot because she was busy working and stuff. And because I had grown up like with my parents, like that's okay if like a woman works full time and like if she has her own career, I knew like that was okay. But then when I would talk to my friends, we'd be like, oh, what do you want to do? And my friends would be like, well, I want to be a mom or like I, I would like to be a homemaker. And I was like, yeah, that's like cool. And they would be like, are you sure like you want to do medical school? Like you could just like marry a doctor or just like, (laughs) Uh and I was like, no, like that's what I want to do. And then even at, um, when I got to BYU, I noticed like in my science classes, like at first my generals, there was lots of girls, but as I got further along the process, it's like more and more boys. And like at the end of it, I swear, like all my classes, there was always like three or four girls. And then the rest was just like all boys. And that one of my advisors too told me like, you know, you should like consider thinking about like, just like being a mom or something, or like, if you're going to be a doctor, like, how's that going to affect your like home or whatever? And Mm -hmm. I think the intent was good that they were, they just wanted me to like, think about that. But I also felt like it was just weird. Like, do you say that to my male co-students? Do you ever mention family planning to them when they come in and tell you they want to be a doctor? Uh huh. I don't think they did. And so that was, it was weird. Like I had like such a good support system, like looking back, like my parents were so good that they always like, it just felt like it was gonna be fine. But I felt like it was like the outside kind of, like you said, just like the culture here of like, are you sure like, that's what you want to do? Like you can stay home, which is fine for some people, but that's just not what I wanted to do. And I imagine it was a little bit more pronounced since you were going to Brigham Young University, which is an, a school owned by the church. So it was probably felt a little bit more strongly in that particular environment as well. Oh, yeah. And then it was always too like, are you sure you don't want to do nursing school or you don't want to do dietetics, which there's it, those are like more of like the female dominated majors at BYU. And I uh-huh. like it was always like, are you sure you want to be a doctor kind of like you know, like, that's kind of like a a boy thing to do, which, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and so that was frustrating and stuff. But I'm, I'm just really lucky, like I had good cheerleaders who, mm-hmm. and then I had Dr. Al that I was like, no, women do it too. And yeah, that's wonderful. So then 
talk to me a little bit about the application process. What was it like applying to medical school? I know it can be a really difficult, overwhelming process for many people. So since I had taken that class, I had I had an idea of what needed to get done. I knew I needed to do research. I knew I needed to do volunteer stuff. I knew I needed to shadow physicians. And um, before I met Dr. Al, I had tried like reaching out to physicians, but they were like, we have a long list or they're like, we're not taking students right now, which I'm sure like doctors in Provo get a lot of pre-med students reaching out and I'm sure it can be kind of annoying, but it's hard to like get in there if you don't know anyone. So then when I finally met Dr. Al, she was like, come shadow me. And then I'm going to introduce you to all my colleagues. And that eased like a lot of that burden because she let me come to her. And then because she reached out to her colleagues um, to ask them if I could shadow, like then they all said yes. And they were totally uh-huh. chill about it. Um, So then I also had to get into a research lab. It's really competitive at BYU. So like a lot of the labs, they were full or they weren't taking anyone. But then I came across one lab that he had an open spot in the lab, but there was like a few of us applying for it. But when I came in and like interviewed for it, anyways, it worked out and I ended up being in that lab. But that was like really overwhelming, like never having done research before and like trying to figure out how to get in there. And then I was doing this all like while doing track and field, like being a student athlete. And then I was also like working a part-time job like at the local rec center. And so it was, there was a lot going on. And sometimes I didn't really know like how to piece it all together. But then Dr. Al really helped me with that. And like, we looked up the requirements for like the University of Utah School of Medicine. And we looked up what the minimum hours were for shadowing and what the minimum or what the expectations were for research and what the minimum hours like expected for volunteering. And so that kind of gave me more guidance that even though it was specific to the University of Utah, that I felt like that would probably apply to most medical schools. But I was also struggling with like trying to study to take the MCAT and like the timing of that with track. And it was kind of a mess, to be honest, for a couple of years. And I, I kind of didn't know what I was like doing. Uh-huh. And then I kept like pushing off things because it, it was just hard with like track. We During track season, you leave on Wednesday or Thursday for a track meet and then you get home Saturday or Sunday. So I was like only there for my classes half of the time. And then like you're focusing on competing. And then I was trying to do research and also like working. And so everything was just kind of a mess. That's a lot. Yeah, I had to push off taking the MCAT until after I graduated, like until after I finished track so I could like get the time too. So I finished track in May of that year. And then I was going to graduate in August of that year. So once I finished track, I was like, okay, I'm going to spend these next two months, I still had two classes to take. So I was like, I'll take my two classes, and then I'm going to do research. um, And then I'm going to study for the MCAT. And I'll take the MCAT after I graduate in August. And so that all happened. And I finally like took the MCAT in August, but medical school applications open up on like June 1st. So I was already two months in, almost three months by the time I actually like took the MCAT into the uh-huh. application process. And so um, it was kind of stressful. They say you should apply early. You should apply as soon as applications open up because a lot of it is like how they give um, interviews is like rolling admissions. Like the first people who like turn the applications in are like the first people to be considered for interviews. And so the earlier you turn it in, it's usually like the better shot you have at getting interviews and stuff. So I was so late in the process, but I I just told myself like that's the best I could do with like what everything I had going on. And so Dr. Al and I decided, you know, 
even if I have to turn in my application late, she was like, you should just go for it. You don't know like that you're not going to get in even if you turn in your application late. So you should just go for it, but only apply to a handful of schools. Uh-huh. Most of the time, pre-med advisors will tell students to apply to 15 to 20 schools just so like it raises your chances of getting in, which can be a really expensive one. And then two, it's just like a lot. Right. So since I knew I was so late in the application process, I was like, I'm going to pick five schools that I really want to go to where I could see myself like going to. And then that's how I chose where to apply. And so I was late in the process. But yeah, I ended up applying to five schools and then got an interview invite to the University of Utah and then was accepted. So luckily I didn't have to go through the process again, but I feel like my journey was like really messy. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. very well, like put together, well planned. Like I tried, but it was just so hard with everything I had going on. Mm -hmm. But I like to share that with people because I feel like there, even though they tell you like you should do this or you should do that, there's not like one way you have to do it to be able to get in. Yeah, I appreciate that point because it's true. I do advise other students and, you know, life isn't always perfect. It doesn't always turn out exactly like you planned. So even if you wanted to start applying in June, right, when things opened up, you know, sometimes students have to retake the MCAT. Sometimes life gets in the way and it doesn't go exactly as planned. So, yeah, there's an ideal way to do it. But I think you're an example of even if you don't do everything exactly like you know, people say is the perfect way to do it, you still have a chance. And sometimes it's still worth trying. And you showed that even though, you know, the application process wasn't as smooth as you wish it was, you still managed to get in. So that's wonderful. So now that you're in medical school, what what does it feel like? (laughs) What's it like? What's your day to day schedule like? Are you having any regrets? (laughs) Or do you feel like you are where you are meant to be? It didn't feel real for like the first six months. Like it definitely didn't feel real. And I would be like, wow, I can't even believe like I'm here. But there, I I struggled a lot too, especially those first six six months with like imposter syndrome with like, do I really belong here? Did Mm -hmm. the admissions committee make a mistake? Did they really know who they accepted? And I kind of gone, (laughs) gone through this like, I don't know, just like a new cycle figuring out who I was and like my identity and stuff but I've had a lot of moments that it's been I felt like it was confirmed to me like even though it's been really hard in a lot of ways but I've seen like I've had a lot of growth and like I've been able to keep up in my classes academically that I was like yeah I I guess I do belong here and the few interactions that we do get with patients and stuff I love it and it's been confirmation like that this is like what you want to do and this this is a better choice than I think you ever even like you knew beforehand that it was going to be. What about that day-to-day schedule? What What is it like? Is it mostly um, sitting in lectures or you know now with COVID in front of your computer? Yeah. Um, how much time do you get to spend seeing patients? And keep in mind for listeners you're in your second year right? Yeah so first year looked a lot different because it was pre-COVID but what it looked like. So at the University of Utah School of Medicine, we as first years, you do classes one to five in the afternoon. And so you spend usually the morning. I'm the type like it. it's good for me to like get up, go to the school and kind of like get in my mindset. And I kind of try to treat it as like a job, like an eight to five thing. So I'd get up and go to the school, try to be there at eight and then um, would study and then had or had like meetings or like other things from eight to one and then would do class one to five and then sometimes activities after. So 
It's pretty busy though. Yeah, it's like a job, eight to five. Um, and I'm a class goer, so I really, I like really enjoy the social aspect of seeing my classmates and being there. And then every Wednesday we do our clinicals class too. That's when we get to see patients and we get to practice physical exams on each other. And since COVID, that's kind of changed. Like now everything is online. We watch lecture online. How it's structured a lot of the time is there's certain lectures you can watch them at any time. They're pre-recorded and you watch them on your own schedule. And then there's lectures that you have to be there in class. Like anytime we do team or group stuff, we do it all online together. And so it's been interesting transitioning from being in person, like being at school, because that's how I like to treat it, like at a job, go to school, study, do stuff at school. And then when I come home, I'm at home. But mm-hmm. it's been a weird transition to like, I wake up and I go from one room and then I go into the, my study room. And then I, I don't know, it's been a hard transitioning. Now I, it's everything's online for the most part, except for our clinical skills. Yeah. So how much of how much of your learning is just like lectures, like listening to a professor talk versus small group things where you're with a couple of your classmates um, talking through clinical cases, for example? Every week we have at least two group things. So one of them, yeah, is like case-based learning. You're on a team and you're given a case and you go through the case together. And then there's another thing called team-based learning. And what they do is like the professors and physicians they give you questions and then you answer them as a team and then they call on your team to ask you what you answered and why you answered it. And so that's at least twice a week, if not more, I'd say two to three times a week at least. And then the rest of it is on your own. So four hours of lecture a day, five days a week, about 20 hours, but I'd say three hours of it is like in groups or teams. So. Gotcha. And then, um, for you, what is it, you know, obviously the the courses in medical school are step up from college. They say that uh, going to medical school is like learning to drink from a fire hose because you're having to learn so much information at such a rapid pace. Um, so what is it that you found helpful for you in learning to master the material and staying focused and succeeding on those exams that you have to take? Yeah, it's been a struggle transitioning like you said, it's just so much material. Like I've never had to learn so much in such a short amount of time. And it's it's like, you're not just like learning this and dumping it. You know, like I felt like an undergrad with some classes, you'd like memorize something real quick and then you'd walk in, take the test and then you'd dump it later. Uh-huh. Everything you're learning, like you're like, oh, I need to know this because this could like affect someone's life one day or whatever. And so uh-huh. at our school, we have an academic success center. And so you can meet um, as much as you want with like one of the advisors and you work with them. Like I've worked with her my advisor a lot to talk about like what works for me because some people are flashcard people I'm not a flashcard person Mm -hmm. so I've done like a lot of experimenting though like I've tried flashcards I've tried things called like mind mapping I've tried um, making the tables and charts and so it's been a lot of like trial Trial and and error yeah and so that's what I felt like a lot of my first year now that I'm in second year but like first year a lot of it was like I just need to figure out like even how I'm going to study, especially because in medical school, there's a lot of like outside resources outside of class. You can watch like different little cartoons to help you memorize. You can watch like other people who teach the same thing. And yeah, a lot of it has just been like trial and error of trying to figure out what works for me. But I'm I'm like a writer, like I like to write things out. And so I whiteboard a lot and I 
kind of like make tables and maps and stuff. And that's been uh, really helpful for me as I've transitioned to figure out what works for me. Wonderful. That's great that they have that resource center. I think a lot of medical schools do have some sort of academic support. Yeah. Um, So that's great that you're making use of those resources. Oh, yeah. And I have a tutor. I forgot. They also provide us tutors um, for free, like the school pays the tutors, but they're students who are like in the years above you. So when I was a first year, I had like a second year who was my tutor. And now I have like a fourth year um, Uh is my tutor. And like, that's like also been a big thing for me being like successful academically, because these are like students who have seen the tests or taken the board exam. And so um, it gives me a lot of direction, like even though this is a fire hose, they can kind of like point me in the direction of like, this is, you know, like what you need to know now, this is the high yield and like, and then we'll build from that from there. Or they can just quiz you, like and give you scenarios like that. I don't think I can do on my own sometimes. And so that's been like a big key in me succeeding academically as well. Uh-huh. Um, what would you say has been one of your favorite experiences in medical school so far? One of my favorite things we don't we haven't been able to do it since COVID, but we have these student-ran clinics. It's for populations that are like not insured or underserved populations, and so uh-huh. like we have physicians who volunteer there. But we get like as students, we get a um, help out. We do like the initial like interview, and then that's when we get to practice like our physical exam skills. But that's our beginning of our like patient interaction and stuff. And so last year during my first year, like I was doing that like every week. We have lots of different clinics, student run clinics. Like we have one for like the unsheltered community. We have one. We have like several like different options. And so I would do like one of those at least once a week. And that's been like my favorite part, just like being able to be with other students and like seeing patients and stuff and like trying to use your like your little knowledge that you do use because like you see uh-huh. the patient and then like even though we don't know any, I felt like I probably didn't know much. Like then you go and you like report to the physician. You say, oh, he comes in like he has a cough or whatever. And, you know, he's wondering if you can check him for that. And then the physician asks you, well, like, what do you think it is? And so it's just been like, that was really fun to like see patients and then like just try to use like the knowledge that you do have and just like see everything come together. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think I remember that being one of my positive experiences the first two years because you're spending so much time just like in lectures and learning by yourself. And so going out and actually getting to apply some of those like skills and some of that knowledge that you're starting to gain to actual patients is really exciting. Oh, yeah, that's great. What about the most challenging experience so far? I think I touched a little on this earlier, but I've, I've definitely have had to kind of figure out my identity again. And some of that has come as a result of like some of my experiences you know my my first week of medical school for the first years they call it transitions week so it's basically one week where they just give you it's like orientation they give you orientation of what it's going to be like for the next four years and you do like a lot of like get to know you stuff with your classmates and like you're you know you're trying to get to know everyone and I was talking to one of my classmates who identifies as a white male and I was telling them, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm just like, this doesn't even feel real to be here. I'm so shocked, you know, and um, I kind of told them, I was like, I was really surprised it worked out. Like I, I applied really late in the cycle. Like I told them like kind of the time, you know, I took the MCAT in August and then I submitted my application on October 31st, which is like the day it closes. And 
he turned to me and he was like, wow, that was like really bold, kind of nervy of you. But I guess when you're like an ethnic female, like you have that advantage. Oh. And yeah, and it, it was in the moment I, I, I just kind of responded like, well, I, I did everything everyone else did to get here. So I don't, I don't think I have any sort of advantage, you know, over anyone else. That experience kind of, like I said, those first six months, I really struggled with the imposter syndrome because I struggled with that. Like as a minority student, was I accepted so that the school could make me some sort of like minority quota or whatever that they uh-huh. have to accept so many minority students? Like, is that why I got in? And is that yeah. why I'm here? And being able to work through that and like some of the other like microaggressions or like comments made similar to that by classmates and by like physicians at the like student ran clinics Uh that's that's probably been like the most difficult part of the medical school experience because you have so much going on but it's just like an additional layer sure of course yeah so how do you deal with that internally like what what has helped you to sort of set those comments aside and maintain that inner strength that motivates you to keep going Finding other like my my fellow minority students has been like key. It was key for me in my undergraduate, like at BYU, finding the other ethnic students and saying mm-hmm. I try to get to know all like the BIPOC students because I think our experience looks different than what white students looks like. Sure. And so being able to talk with like my other fellow students of color has that like brings. I can share something and like I know that they, they've had something similar said or done to them uh-huh. and that they, they know what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing. And so we can like lean on each other for support. That's been like a big thing. And then just finding like I also do we have a wellness center. So like I talk with a therapist every other week just to like mm-hmm. try to talk. I, and I've never done that before, but it's been really good for me to try to like sort through a lot of these feelings and process some of those things. Um, so that uh-huh. doesn't affect me academically. It it was really affecting me, I think, my first six months. But as I've been able to, like, talk through it and process it with my classmates and then, like, with a the therapist, that's been really good for my mental health to overcome that. And then just, like, just succeeding in school, like, being able to pass my exams and to be able to keep up with my other classmates, that's, like, kind of been, like, reassurance to myself. Like, no, you deserve to be here. You're just as smart as, like, everyone else here. Yeah. That's wonderful. I think most physicians of color I speak to say that finding a community of like-minded people and people who share aspects of your background is just so important to help keep you grounded and help keep you going in the face of challenges. And then I love that you mentioned you're seeing a therapist because I think that's so, so helpful. <laughs> like you don't have to be horribly, horribly, horribly depressed or horribly, horribly anxious to go see a therapist. Like all of us have issues, all of us have things that we struggle with. And the sooner we ask for help, the sooner we go see a therapist or try to deal with those issues, work them out, talk them out, the sooner we can start to overcome them and get past them and keep going on our journey. So I love that you're uh, willing to share that too. Now, I know that you're just nearing the end of your second year of medical school, you haven't gotten to your clinical rotations yet. But do you have any idea at this point what kind of specialist or what kind of doctor you want to be? I want to go into primary care. So um, family med, internal med, thought about med peds. I want to do a lot of work within the Pacific Islander community and Latinx community. And so I think I can see myself in primary care and just, for example, in 
Polynesian community, we have a lot of people with type 2 diabetes and hypertension. And I think there's like a lot of preventative health work that needs to be done. And some of the barriers are just having like a culturally competent physician to like help you. Uh-huh. I think that can like make a big difference in uh, health out healthcare outcomes um, in underrepresented populations. I think you can do it in all of them, but I think I see myself in primary care, but I'm, I'm like going into clerkships with like an open mind, mm-hmm. um, whatever comes like and whatever feels right. Yeah, I always recommend going in with an open mind. But you know, some people do have sort of an idea of what they want to do. But yeah, maybe, um, maybe you'll end up loving psychiatry or end up loving surgery or something. So that's great that you still have an open mind. All right, last question here. So thinking about your life up to this point, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, whether that be in high school or a little younger, what advice would you give to yourself? I think a big one is one, not to give up when it gets hard, but two is like, shoot your shot, like just go for it. Because I think you're you'll be shocked at like how far you can go if you actually try. And two, when I say shoot your shot, like, don't be afraid to ask for help. Like if you see a physician, like you can ask them, like, will you help me? Will you mentor me? Will you let me shadow you? And like the worst thing that can happen is that they'll say no. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's like something I, that's really hard for pre-med students, especially, I don't know, like one, we're scared to like ask for help and we don't know what to do. So then we just kind of like lose ourselves. But yeah, like shoot your shot, just like always ask for help, whether it's your professors, like they're always going to help you if you ask them for help, like they'll see that you're willing to learn. And then like, ask a physician if they'll be willing to let you shadow like, like I said, like the worst thing that will happen is they'll say no. And like, you might have your feelings hurt, like for a minute or two, but then you can just ask someone else and you keep trying mm-hmm. and stuff. And so that's something that took me like a long time to learn. And like, if I didn't have Dr. Al who would have reached out to me, I think my journey would have been so much harder because I would have been scared to ask people for help. But I think there are more people out there who want to help us than we realize there are. And so when you shoot your shot and you just ask people, like, like I said, the worst thing is they say no, and then you try again with someone else. Wonderful. That's excellent advice. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Sometimes there will be rejection. But like you said, you just move on. You keep going. You ask someone else. Thank you so much, Sayali, for um, taking the time to talk to us today, for sharing your story. I think it will be inspirational to many listeners um, who themselves are trying to figure out if they want to be doctors and trying to figure out how they can make it on their own path. So thank you again. Any parting thoughts? No, thanks. Thanks for having me. I feel honored. So, (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening as well. Have a wonderful day.